right. So what, what is the ultimate aim of apologetics? I'm going to do a session. If I was to ask you, what's the ultimate aim of apologetics? And I might, I might add to that all of life as we know it. Yes? And the hope that it's in you. The hope that's in you? The glory of God. Is that, is that not the, just the best answer? You know, we often ask folks during training like this, can you quote 1 Peter 3.15, the magna carta passage of a defense of your faith? And most people start with always be ready. Though that's true, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Folks, if I can just encourage you with one thing, you know, life is most fruitfully lived in the big picture as it applies to evangelism. So I'm going to draw you into the, the big picture. But if we would all hold each other accountable to leave here today, declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and refuse to lie about who God is, everything would be much simpler in apologetics. Seriously. And obviously, we have to be winsome, and we're going to get into that. But, um, but my name is Corey McKenna, and I serve as president of The Cross Current. And The Cross Current, or uh, TCC, is a local missions ministry that equips the church by example to what we call normalize sharing the gospel in all your personal and community relationships. Now, by God's grace, I'm an equipping evangelist today, but I wasn't always this way. Very important to understand that. And by way of introduction, as Joe said, let me testify as to why I'm personally so passionate about the content that I'll be sharing with you here today and also this week. And based in my situation, I was raised religious, but without any real relationship with God. I don't know if you can relate to that. Um, but when I radically came to saving faith, way back on March 19th, 1995, at 22 years of age, and uh, I found myself surrounded with non-Christian family and friends. I don't know about your story, but it's certainly my story. And as I began urgently going and sharing this glorious good news of King Jesus, with my own lost loved ones, let's just say that I discovered very early in my new walk with Christ why God's word warns against zeal without knowledge. <laughs> wow. I mean, I was clueless in conversation about Christ. And, and sadly, since I had no one equipped me, by example, with the training and with the tools I needed, to gain confidence in conversation, over time, I just became more and more unconfident. Really even flat out fearful of sharing my faith with others. Yet we know that our unsaved family and friends and, and people that we you know maybe play sports with or maybe we go to school or whatever, we know, we know that they desperately need Jesus Christ, which is hopefully why you're here this week. But in desperate need of being discipled, I began to pray. Right? First priority, not a last resort. I began to pray. And it was then that the Lord graciously brought into my life uh, several evangelism and apologetic mentors, Joe being one, quite honestly. And now, many years later, I've had really countless biblical conversations with my own unsaved family and friends. I want you to get the word conversation in your head. I know it's a buzzword. But we need to have a bit of a long game as it applies to this culture. This culture is not almost Christian. Does everyone understand that? I mean, there's no neutrality. We get that. But this is a terribly lost culture. But since that time, I've had the privilege of also equipping 
thousands of other Christ followers by example, using the training uh, and the tools of the cross current and the very same content that I'll be sharing with you this week. Because maybe you've had a similar experience to what I've had. Maybe you've shared your faith with, with, with that person I call it a smarty pants skeptic. Anyone think of one in your life? A smarty pants skeptic, one person, two, three. I sure have lots of these folks. And over a period of about, of about three years, this is the backstory. My wife Dawn and I, uh, we were witnessing to this lady who uh, who worked at this business where our family would attend, and she heard the gospel from me for certain. Um, but she kept saying, "You've got to meet my husband." I'll call him Raymond. Name change. You've got to meet my husband. He's a real smart guy. You guys will connect well. You're about the same age. Old is what she meant. You're about the same age, and um, and. So finally, I come into contact with Raymond, and he says to me very, very honestly, look, uh, I'm looking to get myself heavily involved in a non-Christian religion that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I think you're pretty serious about what you do. Uh, my wife certainly respects you on that basis. So what happened is, is Raymond and I set, scheduled a series of coffee meetings, scheduled, like actually sit-down conversations. Be warned about sound bite witness. You know what I mean by that? Just these little water cooler conversations. I think it's dangerous. I think we need to present the whole story about the origin of Christ. So that was the context. So the first time we met for coffee, I just wanted to meet a new friend. Now, if you're taking notes, this is a helpful one. Hopefully you meet new people from time to time at church or outside of that. And I use this little acrostic to my sales days called FRIEND. F-R-I-E-N-D. This is my way of sort of getting to know someone, because they typically will quarterback that part of the conversation. So I got to know Raymond. Family. Talked about his family. Everyone wants to do that. Recreation or religion in this context. Talked about that. And we talked about his interests. What do you like to do when you're not working? E, employment. What do you like to do when you are working? <laughs> right? What needs does your family have in a difficult culture, Raymond? And then destiny, where we get to that big question of life, what's next? Right? Which is really what this spiritual journey he was on was all about. So that's what I did. You get that? Meeting one. You with me? Made a new friend with Raymond. Well, the second time we met, I, I sort of set the table for the, uh, the conversation the way I do every time. We'll learn more about this on Thursday. But I gave my new friend Ray a free gift Bible. And I announced scripture as my ultimate authority for all that's true and real. That's what I said to him. And then I said to him, just like this, you know, Ray, based on your request to hear my thoughts about a non-Christian religion that you're hoping to get involved in, I respectfully explained, respectfully, gently, but honestly explained to Ray that, that I can only expose what's false by first establishing the standard of what's true. Does that make sense? One plus one is two. Anything that's not true is not or not two is not true. But we first have to have to establish a standard. Oh, of course, King Jesus has done that. And so, so Ray said, that makes sense. I'm just sort of, sort of guiding the conversation gently. So I took an hour or so to, to tell the story of Scripture, very important, and, and to teach the Gospel in the context of that meta-narrative. Now, because I'm the president of an evangelism ministry, of course, my, my new friend Ray, he immediately repented of his sin. Repented of Jesus Christ. You know, he's been serving faithfully in the church ever. No. <laughs> wow. Did I poke the bear? 
Did I poke the bear? It wasn't that easy. Turned out that this guy was one of the most well-studied skeptics I've ever met. And I've met a bunch. And so after hearing the gospel, the rascal started peppering me with lots of questions. Lots of questions about Jesus, of course, but about philosophy, and about science, and about morality, and about logic, and spirituality, and on and on and on. It went, and as my friend asked me those questions, and here continues to ask those questions, conversations must continue. Do you understand that? This is not a one-shot thing. This is a long game, folks. A long game, but we still talk on Skype now. We moved away, but... But the more I realized that I needed to get equipped biblically more so to share my faith and to give answers for this great hope I have in Christ. And that's why here, here are our simple objectives for this session on apologetic methodology. First, we're going to search the scriptures to unpack key theological and methodological points of a biblical apologetic doctrine and practice, you might call that. But second... Proclaim the glory of God, this is so key, while exposing foolish unbelief based on what everybody already knows specifically about him. This is not just wordsmithing. Biblical apologetics, in my humble experience, is more about exposing than proving. It's more about exposing than proving. And keying in on this idea of what everybody already knows, I want to open our session by digging into a, a, a little something called presuppositions. I know Joe, um, I heard about sort of the importance of this session. Maybe we define this, I'm not sure, but maybe we could uh, sort of uh, regrouping on this. Who's heard this word called presuppositions? Okay, any, without looking in your, in your notes, anyone want to take a, a crack of what this means? Really simply, maybe break it down? A, basically, assumption of your belief. Assumption, that's a great word, yeah. Assumption, I mean, pre means before, right? A supposition is really a belief. So in your notes, presuppositions are foundational beliefs held beforehand. It's really key that we get this. We come to the table with these assumptions, with these biases, with these beliefs already. You could call this on some level your worldview. This is a network of beliefs, Greg Monson would say, about God, about yourself, about the world around you that you already hold. Hear this. This is massively important, massively important, understanding these pre-beliefs for understanding biblical apologetics. Okay, pre-beliefs. What we're going to learn as we open Scripture and start to apply what God clearly teaches here is that as image bearers, we're all image bearers, human beings are image bearers of God. We are constantly imaging God in various ways, and we're simply going to call people to account for things that they can't account for apart from worshiping King Jesus. That's kind of how this in the big picture goes. But let's drill down a little bit. Because to give a defense for our faith biblically, we have to start with Scripture, don't we? God as supreme authority, not man. So what we're going to do, we're going to simply learn to open up the Bible, like at Tim Hortons, for real, or Starbucks, whatever your choice is, with a skeptic. We're going to learn how to do that, open up the Bible with a skeptic, and gently, but very, very forensically, reason from Scripture to expose their foundational knowledge of God based on what they already believe, and certainly how they're behaving as a human being. Said another way, 
Biblical apologetics involves using Scripture not to really prove the existence of God. That's assumed all through Scripture. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. But to expose the non-Christian knowledge of God at the foundational, and that is a key word you're going to hear over and over, the foundational worldview level. Okay? We're going to learn, I'm standing on a platform here. If you go into the Douglas Wilson's debate with, with was it Parker? Wonderful debate. Love that debate. And um, Douglas Wilson talks about the podium. And we need to train ourselves to look at the platform, the foundation people are standing on. We constantly argue up here. We're going to get into this. We need to assess and address the foundation. Now, quite honestly, if you get really, I know you have a lot of heavy lifting this week as young people. I know that. But if you get nothing out of my session, please, please, please lock and load these two telling presuppositions. These are, again, foundational beliefs that God says, as supreme authority, everyone already has. And they inform everything people already believe about much of their human experience. Again, you, you just got to catch this. You just got to walk into me for a few moments here, okay? Because if you just get these and start to witness based on what God's already clearly told us, this will radically change your life and witness for the Lord. Here's the first. Everyone knows God, and all are without excuse for denying Him. That may be a bit of a showstopper. We'll unpack it a bit. Um, I think it for a second. Now, to, to better understand this theological point, I want to go to Scripture. It's going to be on the screen, but I encourage you to open your Bible. Love to hear pages moving as a pastor and evangelist. Romans 1, 18 to 21. This is really the... Uh, the passage on this. The great memory verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly, look at this word, perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give them to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became, look at that word, not my word, God's word, fools. See, this passage confirms several other places as well that everyone knows God and all are without excuse for denying Him. Kind of seeding this truth within this context, you might say it this way. God has given all people the presupposition of His existence because they already know God exists. So what, is, what does Scripture call those who deny God's existence? Is it, you know, amazing academics? Thank God for academics. Is it, you know, uh, fantastic philosophers? Is that the term? Look what it says. Psalm 14. said it in Romans 1. Psalm 14 says this. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Now, please hear this. This is not God's version of intellectual name-calling, nor should it be yours. There are some brilliant fools in the world today. Always have been. Because this word fool is more of an more of an 
a moral indictment than it is an intellectual one. God is not saying they're stupid. See, the professing atheist or even agnostic is a fool because in saying that God doesn't exist when they already know that God does exist, they're actually lying against, therefore sinning against the God that they do know exists. And the showstopper, really the great reveal is this. These passages confirm that all people in all times, in all places, know God exists and he goes so far as to call them fools for denying him. Just rest assured, young people, that, that God does not condemn anyone for what they don't know. But for sin against God, they do know. And this is, this is really important. See, on the authority of God's word, I tell you, there are really no true atheists or true agnostics. There are in the land of the Bible, there are idolatrous fools who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, for those of you who are missiologists or biologists or missions-minded like I am, it begs the question, so what about those who have never heard the gospel? Is that a good question? Wait a second. What about the Peruvian tribe leader we always hear about in you know, missions workshops? Let's just call him Bob. Palindrome, right? Spoke the same both ways, Bob. What about Bob? I mean, Bob's never received a copy of the scriptures. He's never heard about Jesus. What happens to Bob? Let me ask you, based on Romans 1, and really all of scripture, if anyone, including Bob, in Bob's tribe, dies and stands in judgment before holy God, is Bob with excuse or without excuse? He's without excuse. Why? Because he already knows Creator God exists, but he willfully, it's tricky, he willfully denies him. He suppresses the truth. Do you understand this, folks? That if Bob were with excuse today, we read John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but those who do not believe are condemned already. Is that not what the passage goes on to say if we read the whole thing in context? Do you understand? If Bob were with excuse today, in other words, lay this out, Bob could die and stand before his creator and say, I just didn't believe in you. I'm an atheist. Or, there are lots of options in Peru. God, I mean, you've seen it, right? I mean, there's tons of faith people to worship and things and creatures. Do you understand, if he was with excuse, were with excuse, the worst thing we could do would be to send all of you on mission to go to Peru and preach the gospel. Because then he'd be without excuse. We should send wall building teams around those if, if they are with excuse, but they're not. King Jesus said, Go into how much of the world? All. And preach the gospel to every creature. Why? Because they are without excuse today. That's so easy for me to swallow when I think of Peru. I'm from Nova Scotia. Quite literally, all of my family and friends are non-Christian. All. We are first-generation worshippers of Christ. So that's easy for me to, to roll with as it applies to, to Peru, but what about Peterborough? What about Western University? Do they know? I mean, man, they've got some great arguments. I know. Yes, they do know. So hear this. Practically, the next time you're... 
smart family member or friend, and there's lots out there. Again, this is a this is a moral thing, because they're suppressing truth and unrighteousness, and then you know. The next time they say, I'm an atheist. Or for the first time in human history, it seems as though it's, it's intellectually so you don't know something. How do we get here, right? I'm an agnostic. Okay. I'm not saying, no, you're not. I don't do that, folks. I may say, do you consider yourself a hard atheist or a soft atheist or a word, you know, who you listen to? And, but I know my knower, based on the authority of the Bible, that they do that. And we have this thing in evangelism called a push point. That if, if I have a cup of coffee that's that's deep enough to talk to that person, there's a push point to whereby I hit a nerve and they do know God exists. So they go, yeah. <laughs> so it just happens that way. But in apologetics, what we're really doing is lovingly, silky, and respectfully reasoning from Scripture. That's so important. To remove the mask of foolishness and suppression of truth to those who are without excuse. Why? To share our hope in Christ, in his gospel, in his lordship over everything. Okay, so that's that's sort of presupposition one. Here's key point two. All arguments begin with truth, which only comes from God. All arguments begin with truth, with belief in truth, which only comes from God. Let me just... Um, Share a few scripture verses to better understand what exactly this means. First, John 17, 17 says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said that, right? Your word is truth. Pretty clear. God and his word are the very essence of truth. Just taking this at plain reading. Romans eleven thirty six, powerful verse. All things, look at this, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. All things are from God, including and especially, really, truth. Do you want to know what truth is? It's a question Robin asked. Give it the same place. This is the definition. We, most people have what's called a correspondence view of truth. We can maybe talk about that tonight. But I love, uh, I believe it's Bonson's uh, definition of truth. Truth is what God says, starting his word. I like that. Truth is what God says, starting in his word. Again, very, very um, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, Bible-centered understanding of apologetics. So let's just get our, our biblical brains in tune here for a moment. Where does truth ultimately start? I'm going to kind of put a syllogism together, a bit, of a, a bit of a biblical thread here. Where does truth ultimately start? With God, with God and his word. And do all arguments assume that truth exists? If someone steps up to the plate and says to you, I don't agree with such and such, are they coming to that argument with a pre-belief in truth? Yeah, so they wouldn't be arguing. You understand, the second someone opens their mouth, they're confessing to you they believe in truth, or they wouldn't argue. They would just kind of fumble around and make strange statements about human conditions, but they, as soon as you argue, just in as much as Breathing requires air. Arguments require truth. They don't get that? That's not complicated? No. I mean, if they argue, then they, they believe truth. Okay. So here's the simple truth of this second point. And please note, this is going to become so, so important when answering, okay, in, in conversation, a quote-unquote atheist or anyone else for that matter. Arguments against God, hear this, 
expose that unbelievers hate God and must suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I mean, if your skeptical friend were to come at you with something like this, you know what, you know what, Michael, I don't believe that, that, that words exist, and you cannot convince me otherwise. Now, most people in this time and place, because we've been conditioned with all this information, we're a bit top-heavy sometimes. Can I say this on the microphone? Most ladies get this quicker than men do. I don't know why that is. I've been teaching this a lot of years. Most women get this, and I'm not saying they're, they're simpler. My wife is much smarter than me. But most guys muddy the waters here. But if I was to say to Michael, I don't believe words exist, and you cannot convince me of the law. What we would typically do is we would load up words, you know, and we look at the definition of this. We, we you know, we, we would just, well, what do you mean words don't exist? There, 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 there. We would point to stop sign, we point to the screen, my laptop. What's probably the simplest response to someone who says something as foolish is, I don't believe words exist. You just spoke. I still don't believe words exist. And you did it again. <laughs> and you keep doing it. I mean, you wouldn't pull out a dictionary and give them evidence for the existence of words. You'd say, well, this is a little puzzling, but you're using words to argue against the existence of words. We'll just hear this by way of illustration. In the same way, when a skeptic says to you, I don't believe in God or that God exists, what are they using? They're using truth because they come to that conversation already believing in truth, or they wouldn't come against it, right? They're using truth, which only comes from God. To argue against God. So what we're going to learn to do is just open the Bible, open God's word to gently and respectfully expose that, to tell them that. Because again, as image bearers of their creator, every unbeliever has been given enough knowledge to condemn them. Romans 1, Romans 2, general revelation by a creation of their conscience. They know God exists, sun, moon, and stars. They know right from wrong. They know they know but insufficient knowledge to save them, which is why we share the gospel. And we hope that God grants his gift of faith, repentance and faith, 2 Timothy 2. So where does the unbeliever get the faith they need to be saved? Is it just, I can believe in stuff in all the t-shirts, just believe, friend. No. It says faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I don't want to oversimplify the whole thing. I know, I know we have some, some smart people in the world, folks, but... Knowing this is true, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Why would I reason primarily from anything other than this book if this is how faith happens? Do you, do you understand that? This is the best apologetic book I know. And I've got some good ones. And Joe has some good ones. And there's some great books. We thank God for, for, for many, many, many people he's used through the years. So what we're going to learn together to do is it gently and respectfully reason from Scripture to expose this fact that the unbeliever uh, knows God exists, but they're suppressing the truth about God through various forms of unrighteousness. So you're going to have to study this a bit. This is not add water and stir. I mean, I've been at this for a long time, Joe longer. It, 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 it's not the kind of thing that it just comes that quick and easy. You're going to have to study this. You're going to have to unpack those verses that we left with you in your notes. But I do want to share a simple illustration uh, about the aim of apologetics, again, which is really about God's glory and about authority. This is actually the, the story of Scripture that we build sort of our methodology on, pun intended, but build on. 
the rock of Christ. That's what Jesus says here. In the context of being a true follower of Christ and really authority, everyone then who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not do them, he'll be like, here's the word again, he'll be like a foolish man, who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I love the ending. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Really, when you drill down to the bottom line, apologetics is a, is a battle of the worship of Jesus Christ, but it's also about his authority. His sovereign authority. So on who or what foundational authority is every aspect of life built well, for us as Christians? Jesus Christ, his lordship, his gospel. So when we give a defense for faith biblically, what we're going to learn to do is stand strong on our foundation in every category of existence and expose theirs. You get that? expose theirs as false. I love this illustration. Maybe you've heard this before. Picture's always worth a thousand words. This one really proves the point about foundations. Foundations. Rabbi Zacharias tells a story inspired by this building called the Wexner Center for the Arts. Rabbi visits this building. I mean, magazines call this America's first deconstructionist building. Really just means that, uh, that the, the guy who designed it didn't want to follow the standard rules. Uh, he went way off the script. So Rabbi walks into the building. He sees the foolishness ultimately of, you know, staircases going nowhere. Can you picture it? Like, you're right. Pillars holding absolutely nothing up. And apparently the architect seems fairly confident in his version of an illusion he's, he's created. Most people argue within the illusion. Their faith, their Christian faith. They just argue with the illusion. Rabbi, pretty smart guy. I'm not saying I agree with everything Rabbi teaches, but a pretty smart guy, and I think this is, this is spot on as an illustration. Rabbi asks a great question, and I want you to learn the heart of what he's doing here. He looks down at the man's feet, and he says, is the foundation built this way? And the, you can probably see the guy starts busting into a sweat, because he's been, he's been busted. Now that Rabbi's saying, look, we both know, friend, that what's beneath the surface is built to a certain code, is it not? No code, no building. He wanted to drag Rabbi into a, an, an illusory argument. Rabbi refused. He addressed the foundation. So instead of arguing the illusion that you're going to be presented with about subjective truth, I don't believe in absolute truth. Is it absolutely true you don't believe in absolute truth? Yes. So you do. Is that true? That's the truth. Yes, you heard hearing. You see how this goes. That's the merry go round of the laundry. But instead of that, instead of always arguing about pillars and staircases, we need to be respectfully, respectfully hear that, respectfully asking the skeptic, upon whose authority are your questions built? Can we look at the foundation of your thinking? The foundation of your morality? The foundation of your science, the foundation of your logic. That is the presuppositions we both bring to the discussion. See, we need to 
Again, loving. The goal is the hope of Christ and his gospel and his glory, but we need to lovingly let the skeptic know that whether they want to acknowledge the one true God or not, that's a work of the Spirit, all of what's true about life has been built on God's code. Absolute, locked and loaded, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because God's code is the only code that makes sense. Do you understand? When Scripture says Jesus spoke in one way has authority, it's not like some of us perceive in this sort of marketplace of worldviews and ideas that we all walk into Tim Hortons with our friends and we pick our favorite donut and that suffices as your worldview and they're all equally valid. This is not true. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens and the earth. God makes this very, very simple. There's Jesus Christ and his sovereign lordship over all that is, where there's idolatry. Now, I wouldn't lead in with that in Mormon. Hey, idol worshiper, great to see you today. I don't do that. I know this is a pretty strident talk right now. We're laying a foundation. But thankfully, the Bible teaches us how to do that. How do we expose, that's what it is, the foolishness of the skeptic. I want to close this session on apologetic methodology, sharing a method that's proven very fruitful for me personally when advancing and giving defense of the gospel, specifically in this context of family and friends over conversations. Uh, I'm just going to tell you this straight up. Thursday, when we go uh, to Hamilton, and some of you may be terrified about that, that's more for us than them. I'm not saying that God didn't save people through street ministry. Uh, there, there's several people on our team that were saved through a track or an open-air sermon. I believe that's more about the fellowship of, of believers and God's pleasure being upon us because we're declaring Jesus. I really believe that. But, but this will be super helpful for you and your life of witness, especially with family and friends. I call this explain and expose. That's our memorable tag. This is in the Bible. Okay, this is all through Scripture. But I want you to see this in Scripture before I, I teach it through. If you turn your Bible to Acts chapter 26... I encourage you strongly to read the entire passage on your own. But to sort of telescope these principles for today, in the time that I have, let's look at the beginning and the bookends of this story. Paul with Agrippa. So I'm going to first uh, read verses 1 to 3. So Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his... Defense. Anyone know the word for defense in the language? Apology. Yeah, apology. Make your defense. Look how, look how winsome Paul is. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense, same word today, against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Then we're jumping to verses 24 to 29. There's a great story in the middle, a true story that you need to read. But as he was saying these things, Paul, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Clearly, Paul was, you know, reasoned, rational. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, respectful, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, or this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, 
In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, Paul wants more, but also to all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So what, what, what's happening here? Let's read the play a little bit. Well, like all arguments that come against the Christian faith, it's really about authority. Who says? It's a great two-word question to ask any of your friends. If they're, you know, they're kind of lobbing a grenade about the white movement, and they're talking about this, that, the other, Donald Trump, there's so many things swirling. Who says? Who says that's the right way to do things? Who says? Right? Now, before I apply the principles here with explain and expose, get a bit of background. So Paul, here's Paul's the Christian, obviously. Paul clearly knows the story of Christ and the gospel. That's very important. Know your Bible, folks. Paul, man of three worlds, born a Jew, no scripture, educated as a Greek, no false belief systems, lived as a Roman, know your citizenship. That's a great little tripod for a, I believe, a, a solid biblical witness in this time and place. But he stands firm on God's authority. You see, this Paul's not wavering here. But Agrippa the skeptic, he also knows the story of Christ and the gospel. So we have two people who both hear, evidently, but he stands on his own authority. Wow. Anyone know, really, the, the kind of the first sin of the garden in Genesis 3? Does anyone know the word that kind of hangs over that? Who knows the word autonomy? What's autonomy? Self-government. Self-government, a law unto myself. I want to be my own authority. Is that not the world today? Nothing's really changed. Nothing's really changed. But that's a rip And this entire conversation seems to follow this really helpful framework of explain and expose. Right? Paul clearly, Paul courteously explains the truth of God. That's what I do with Tim Hortons. I explain what the Bible says about said questions. But then he expose, exposes Agrippa as a fool for, express, for um, denying the truth of Christ. So like Paul with Agrippa, after we've shared the gospel, I won't say after, you can't water an unsown seed. You can't answer an unheard hope. Can I encourage you to lead in with the gospel based on, as Joe said, your testimony? I mean a gospel testimony. How Jesus fixed my drinking addiction is not a testimony. When they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, that's the gospel. It's his story, not mine. Now, yes, I'm in there, praise the Lord, I'm part of that narrative, praise the Lord, he brought me into that, right? But it's God's story. But share your testimony, share the gospel, but you can't answer an unheard of hope. If you're just arguing with someone, apart from the hope of Christ, you're just arguing. Who are you arguing, arguing towards? So we share the gospel, it's really important. Paul does it, he knows the gospel of but when questions come, and hopefully they do, it means the Spirit's at work. They just go, nah. Well, I would rather them start to poke me on some things. But when they come, and they will, hopefully, we gently and respectfully teach that all arguments begin with truth. only comes from God. And so this is the way I structure that, if this is helpful. After I've shared the good news with, with my friend, I just share the gospel in the context of the whole story, starting with creation. Like Paul does in Acts 17. But first, I explain how Scripture answers that question with ultimate authority. Here it is, and I open it up. You need to know your Bible a little bit. Maybe you need to do some homework and come back to the conversation. Great. This is going to force you to know Scripture. That's the first thing. But with real-world evidence, I'll add that in if it's helpful or in context. 
But then, hear this, then we expose the skeptics' false authority by hearing how they answer the same question. Right? One built his house on what foundation? The rock. One built his house on the sand, both here. It's all about the foundation. I want to hear how they answer the question. I'm not the one in the docket here. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is, he, why is evil a problem in your worldview? That's a foundational issue. The foundational issue is morality. Well, instead of spinning off into some psychological, you know, a, a philosophical argument that, man, I am not qualified to probably spirit in any way, and I can't always phone Joe. Wish I could. Truthfully, just talking to this guy. You ever phone a friend? You got young enough to remember that show? That'd be the friend I phone. But I'm sitting there at Tim Hortons going, man, this guy's got three years of, of philosophy. I don't. But I have a sword. He doesn't have. And when I say to him, hey, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna open this. Is, is that cool? Sure. He has no clue. He's kind of like Spurgeon said. I just release the lion in the conversation. I want to give you a real life example of just. I think this will be helpful. This is. I've honestly um, been engaged in this method, out Paul, out of certainly out of Jesus, out of Scripture, with hearing, doing, foundational issues and such. I want to give you a, a real-life example. Now, if you're taking notes, I always frame conversations with skeptics about Christ's gospel and lordship by first reading with them. So after we've shared the gospel, and I do that, I share my testimony. When the questions come, yeah, but what about this? Or what about that? Instead of panicking, I seriously give them a little summary. I, I flip the sermon on the middle. I do. And I say, hey, just let me just summarize what Jesus says about this. You know I follow Jesus. I know that's kind of a clip in your way because you think that's really weird. I get that. But Jesus claims supreme authority over all things. So what I love to do, I just literally narrate for them what's coming. I, I just want to open my Bible and answer your question from here. To the best of you. I might have to come back on this, man. I, honestly, I don't know everything. But just please be aware, I'm going to invite you in conversation to answer the same question from your authority. Technically, your Bible, as it were. And here's what we're going to find every time. Mine stands, yours falls. They don't submit to the Lordship of Christ. They won't. They're unbelievers. That's kind of the definition there. They don't submit to the Lord. You can't, you can't open your Bible in a conversation with them. What else are you going to open, folks? Really? So we find winsome ways to do that. But I met college. <laughs> this is a wow. So I am doing training just like this at a church um, years ago. And I met this young guy named Colin. He was probably 20. Really smart. So he sits through a whole apologetics conference with me. You picture this. He's sitting just like you were. A whole day. He walks up to me and he says, hey man, I'm an atheist. First thought was, man, that's humbling. You're still an atheist. I mean, I just talked to you for eight hours and that didn't help. He's like, no, really. Wow. So that was humbling, right? Work of the Spirit. God didn't grant repentance. But he said, I'd love to get together with you. I have some questions about the Christian worldview. I said, that'd be great. So we scheduled, again, a cup of coffee. Are you catching the drift? Have a conversation. This soundbite culture is going to kill us because you need to share the whole picture with people. They need to understand the robustness of your worldview. This isn't just a, a water cooler thing. And so he was so excited to, to connect. He said he had, I've got a bunch of questions, and he did. He had a whole page full of questions. But I explained him very gently, you know, Colin, my custom, Paul Word, my custom with, with non-Christians is to first share my hope. You hungry for hope, man? 
just keep this the forefront of our conversation. Sure. So I, I took the time and, and, and shared the hope and, and the gospel. And, but then we transitioned into the question period, the apologetic period, and I said, but now we're going to switch gears. Jesus, the one I follow, he tells this story about building your house with the rock. And, and I just want to kind of tell you what he's getting at here in basic summary. He's basically saying this. If I am a hearer and doer of his word, when my worldview house is built about whatever you want to talk about, all the various rooms that straight that you can see in that politics and, and business and, and all these spheres, when I build my thinking, my worldview on him and his word, it's robust. It stands through any storm, any conversation. But I'm going to invite you to do the same thing because you've got views too. We're going to see who stands. Is that okay? He's like, absolutely. Perfect. So he had a bunch of questions. But this was his most pressing personal question, and why was it personal? He asks me this, how could God, I have written it, how could God allow my sibling to be born with a mental condition whereby they have no ability to love? Wow. Now, I've lost two, two infant children, one at a month, one at a week. Uh, we have two healthy guys in the middle, praise the Lord. So this is pretty near and dear to me, and, and again, hear this. The toughest answers are most, our questions are most often answered in the biggest picture. So we had to angle out, and, and so I first explained to Colin how Scripture answers his question with supreme authority. Now I did that, and I opened the Bible. For real. I already told him I do this. I opened the Bible, and I, I talked about God's creation and the original creation and what we were what we were up to and worshiping God and loving God and each other. And it, it was a, you know that there was this innocence and all these things. But then sin enters the world of death through sin, and as one's made in God's image, we are to love one another. Like Jesus said, even your brother who's made in God's image, he's fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that I know that he's got some compromise because of this fallen creation, but we love him. And, and we actually help him and we respect him. And, and, and this is why we do what we do. This is why Christians historically were so um, so important in, in, in orphanages and all the reformers and such. And he's like, oh, okay. And so all of this in the big picture only makes sense if Christ is born. You understand that? He goes, why don't we agree with that? Well, I said, okay, that's cool. How do you understand the condition of your brother? From your worldview, right? Just comparing foundations. He said, why don't I go? I said, I'll be really, really honest with you. I'm going to be a bit of a sand in the spectrum at this point with you. If you were consistent, you should just destroy your brother. Do you think you like that? No, he's bigger than me, too. I'm not big, and I'm kind of waiting for the, the left book. But I said, Colin, I don't believe that any more than you do. Here's what's really going on. You are an image bearer of God who knows certain... I just teach him what I just taught you. An unbeliever? Yes. It's not like he's totally, you know, incapable of understanding these concepts and the Spirit works through this, but I reason through Scripture. I reason through Scripture. And then at the end, you already asked me. I know I get to wrap up. You already asked me. Yeah, Corey, I know the Bible's true. Who's been asked that before? Right? Pretty present. I know God's true. Well, you know what the Bible says? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. It actually says it's in it's in the in the sight of God that we declare Christ. What's the ultimate aim of apologetics? Who's got it? The ultimate aim? The glory of God. Maybe this is helpful. I don't want to be existential or mystical, but I'll often picture Jesus sitting right beside me when I'm sharing the faith with someone. And when someone says, how do you know the Bible is true? If Jesus is sitting there, you think I say, 
textual evidence, historical accuracy. None of those things are true. Who am I saying? I know because God says his word is true. And that's epistemological and based on knowledge. But experientially, if you deny his word, like you've just clearly done here, Colin, you become a fool who can't even function. His words, yes, they're true, but they're also experientially true. Doctrine and practice. So if you will not just believe a certain way, young people, but behave consistent with your doctrine, Christ will be glorified. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this mind-blowing opportunity. Lord, as I look in this room, God, I just would, uh, would pray that that these teachings would multiply. God, I, I really believe that we need to pray for multiplied fruit in this conference, in this camp. I pray, God, that these young people would not just fall in the trap of being disciples, Lord, but they would also be disciples who make disciples. They would be disciple makers. That we are to follow King Jesus and teach others to obey what he has commanded. But we do all of this, Lord, in his sovereign authority. And it's in his name Thank you. We worship you. We love you. Amen. Thanks so much, Corey. Hey, guys, make sure that you write your own questions because um, we'll have our Q&A this evening. Um, we're going to take a break now.